Carpenter's Way. So you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning.
Good morning, Carpenters Way, non-hunters. What a weekend is an hour. You know, it's funny also when the time changes and you have an extra hour to sleep. Isn't it amazing how you waste that hour and it still feels like you lost an hour? But we're glad to have you here this morning. Lots of stuff going on this time of the year. Uh, if you grab your worship guides, I want to open it and highlight some things for you. If you're visiting with us or watching on the Internet, uh, we are glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, we are going to be uh, wrapping up our time in 2 Samuel this morning and looking at the end of David's life. Uh, and seeing if we can make some interesting observations about who this man was that God said is a man after his own heart. So we're awfully glad that you're with us today, and we hope it'll be an encouragement to you. Do have some, uh, some things we need to highlight. As you noticed coming in this morning, we got all those boxes for Operation Christmas Child. It is upon us, and it starts a week from tomorrow. We start collecting, and uh, if you uh, – so two weeks from tomorrow is our uh, – is our Operation Christmas Child Box Day. So if you want to pack a box and send, uh, lots of opportunities and op, uh, ways of being involved. Uh, you can pack a box, and if you can't afford to do that, uh, there's uh, you can volunteer to receive boxes and cartons and crates from other churches and areas. So we would encourage you to be involved uh, in whatever way you can. But these boxes go throughout the world and uh, to into churches and ministries where the gospel is presented in place that otherwise it wouldn't be. So we encourage you to be involved. Even if you can't pick up boxes or crates, we can have you registering people and all. But this is something we do as a church each year, and we would sure appreciate you being involved in that. You need to, <coughs> excuse me, if you'd be willing to sign up for that at the table, we would appreciate that. Uh, find a time that you're available. I also, oh, I forgot to mention, uh, if, if you missed it, Wednesday night we had uh, uh, kind of a party here, a family night, a uh, hot dog roast, and we had such a great turnout and had a blast. And for those of you who missed it, we have another one coming up in a couple of weeks. It's our annual agape feast. It's on uh, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving on November 20th. We will empty this worship center out and fill it full of tables and chairs. And what we will do is uh, you bring uh, the information is in your worship guide. But uh, if you bring a couple dishes to share and we will pig out all those, you know, most of us actually like the side dishes at Thanksgiving more than the main event. And uh, we do that at this. We'll have we will certainly have chicken and different things. But uh, this is a wonderful time for us uh, to just hang out together and spend some time. Um, there's no preaching at this event. It's just dinner and some fun and laughter. And then uh, and then we go on to celebrate Thanksgiving with our, our birth family. So. If uh, there's information there, we encourage you all to come. And if you want to bring somebody with you, it's a, it's a really nice time together. So that information is in there. If you have any other questions, you can contact the office, and we'll be glad to answer them. I also want to highlight that next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock is our annual business meeting. Um, and uh, the information we will be voting on is in the white insert. So please, if you're a member of Carpenter's Way, take some time to review that. Uh, just by way of highlight, th we, we, uh, we vote on our church officers. We have two deacon positions. Uh, Glenda Ayers for finance team, mission investment is Rex Gray, and then Jeremy Overby for elder. Uh, and if you have any questions or concerns about any of those people, please, please address them before next Sunday. You can find us uh, on the back. There's a list of our elders, or you can call the office. But uh, that is a meeting to build up, not to tear down. So if you have any questions or concerns, please don't hesitate to let us know. That's why we put them out there. And then our vote will be next Sunday evening. Last announcement I'd like to make, and then Kip's going to come up. Um, is uh, this afternoon at 2 o'clock, uh, little insert, there is a women's safety seminar, uh, and that's going to be held down in the student room, and I just wanted to remind you all of that. Ladies, there's no cost to that, and uh, 
But if, if you're interested in that, you can join us. Kip Havard is the chairman of our elder council, and he's going to come up and make an announcement, and then he's going to lead us in prayer for our offering. Father, as we prepare to take up this offering, I pray that, pray that it would be used for your glory, for your benefit, and that we would not use it for things of, of human need, but you'd direct our path, Lord. We thank you so much for a wonderful opportunity to come here and to worship. Uh, we know that a lot of places don't have this, and God, you've just blessed us so much. We pray for guidance, direction. God, you promised that if we ask for wisdom, you'll give it to us, and we pray for wisdom. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. with us.
everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary. They will walk.
let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, there's so much noise out there in our country, in our world, in our own hearts. Father, I was aware this week of some of our families who have family members that are struggling. Father, we think of the stringers right now. We pray for Kathy that you would rule in her life. Father, for, for, for others, uh, Kaywood was just telling me that he lost both an uncle and a, a niece this week or two weeks ago. Father, life hurts. And sometimes it's hard, Father, for us to see you in it. Lord, people struggle with work and marriages. Father, David's life was no easier, but throughout it all, he seemed just to keep his focus on you. So, Father, I pray that you said this is a man that's an example for us. I pray we'd learn a little bit about how he did it and glean from that and be changed by it. Lord, if I have a lot of, we have a lot of folks hunting, some in hospitals, some traveling today. Be with them. We know that people are watching on the Internet. Maybe they've given up on the church. Father God, may we not be religious people, but people who love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This past Wednesday night, I mentioned already, we had a, a, a hot dog roast. Uh, and uh, appreciate Carol and her team doing that. Tom Selman cooked for us. It was such a nice night. It was so good to pack this, this place and just have fun together. Um, I want to remind you of what we do here. Uh, you can certainly read commentaries and, and you can get on the internet and get lectured at, but boy, it's family. What we do here is family. We pray for each other, we build each other up, we encourage each other, and I want to encourage you to value that. We come together to serve, we come together to support minister, uh, evangelism across the world, but it's not by doing that we become spiritually healthy. We do those things because we are spiritually healthy. Um, I want to encourage you in the next couple of months, we have a few opportunities. Sometimes we get, I mean, during this time in the Word, we get real serious together. Uh, there are times in Bible study we discuss these things, we disagree, we learn something our culture can't do any, anymore. We, we, we learn, <coughs> we reason together, <coughs> listening to each other, all surrounding the Word of God. This is our final authority. Uh, but sometimes we party together. And over the next couple months, uh, during what some are referring to as eating season, <laughs> we're going to have opportunities to do that, and I want to encourage you to be involved. Just come out. Uh, some, some things will be on Sundays, some things will not, but, you know, we've got our agape feast, and we've got this stuff going on with Operation Christmas Child, and then we're going to have our family Christmas, which is going to be a great Sunday morning. We're going to have our, our candlelight service Christmas Eve. Uh, and then that Sunday night of the family service, we're actually going to have we're going to have just a silly night. We're going to put a movie on in the parking lot, and hopefully there'll be a few hundred of us here. And that night, more important than the movie, is going to be we're going to have a junk food buffet, uh, and we're going to encourage you to bring your favorite gross, not good for you food. Some of you will bring, I know, lettuce and stuff. That's okay. Nobody will eat your lettuce, but I I just want to reiterate how important those times are. Those are so important. Um, it's important that you're involved in a Bible study. It's important that you break down this big old room into smaller groups because really uh, life is difficult as we learned even from David and we need each other, man. We need to lift each other up. We need to build each other. We need to feed each other. We need to pray for each other. 
We need to, when we're struggling with sin, we need to know somebody we can say, man, I'm struggling with sin, somebody that's not going to tear us apart, but it will lift us up. That's what the body of Christ is about. That's the church. It's not about bigness. It's not about flashiness. It's about, it's about reminding each other that it is well with our soul and to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face so that the things of the earth will become strangely dim. Fifty years from now, everyone in this room, okay, I'll give some of you more lifetime. A hundred years from now, none of this stuff that you're worrying about this morning is going to matter. It won't matter who wins Tuesday, who loses Tuesday. It won't matter. All that's going to matter is what, how much we trusted the Lord for his plan, how we walked with him, how we walked with each other. And I want to remind you that the two greatest commands in Scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And I believe most of you got that. I, know, I believe most of you love God. I think we struggle loving each other, not just at Carpenter's Way, but in this culture anymore. We're, we're looking for people that tell us what we want to hear, and that's not what the church is about. The church isn't about finding a place where everybody agrees with you. The church is about finding a place where everybody ab- agrees with God's word. The job of a pastor, the job of the elders, is not to dictate truth to you, but to discover it through their own prayer and study of the word and dictate our real senior pastor's truth. That's what I do. My job is not to tell you what I think. My job is to tell you what he thinks. And because I can be wrong on those things, I encourage you to disagree with me under one condition. Not because it just doesn't feel wrong, but because God's word, you can, within its context, you can prove me wrong. And I, will t- I, I haven't said this for a while, but I promise you this. If, if I teach a, a scripture and you can show me in scripture where I've been wrong, I promise you that the next opportunity I have, I'll get up in front of the church and tell them I was wrong. I've done that before, once in 33 years. I've done that. I'm just kidding. I, I've done that before. And, uh, and that's important because I'm not, I'm not all-knowing. I'm, I'm a servant of the all-knowing one, right? And you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and you need to teach me stuff. And I've I got to be honest. I, I'm a little frustrated with the body of Christ in the Bible Belt because we just leave churches and we don't agree with the preacher. That's not what this is about. We talk, and preachers need to learn too. So man up. Be involved in the body of Christ. I know some of you just went, me too, me too. Okay, women up. Come on, let's do this thing. Uh, Our lives are almost over. We're passing this on to our kids. Raise up your kids and your grandkids to love them, walk with God. Pray for those. You may not be called to student ministry, but pray for those who are. We go through good seasons and bad seasons. Church go through great times and bad times. Some of you are going, why is he saying this? Because I want to remind you what the church is and is not. God's good, you guys. He's so good. The church is not. God is good. You can say that. That's going to be our T-shirt. The church is not good, but God is. That's, that's going to be how we sell it. I'm, okay, I'm going to get on with the text. 1 Kings 2, 1 to 12. As the time of, the ki- of King David's death approached, he, came to char- uh, he gave this charge to his son Solomon. I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. Death. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, the commands, regulations, and the laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all that you do and wherever you go. Okay, I want to point this out so you don't get confused because a lot of stuff is taken out of context here. He's encouraging Solomon, the next king, to keep the Mosaic Covenant. We've been talking about this on Wednesday night. That's not, you are under the new covenant, but this the Jews were agreed to the Mosaic Covenant. So he's telling the third king, Solomon, remember to keep the covenant. You've got to study that. You've got to be in the, the Torah. You've got to understand. Keep the laws of Moses, and in that you'll be successful in all you do and wherever you go. That is not a promise to you. That is a promise to the king and the nation of the, of the Hebrews that God made that agreement to. 
if you keep these laws at the base of Mount Sinai, I will bless you. You will never be defeated in war. You're, you'll be healthy. There'll be food. I will provide for you. That is not a promise to Christians in 2018. I just want to, we can argue that at different times. But too many people are claiming that, and then it's not coming true, and people are giving up on the truth because they think the Bible's not trustworthy. So I want to be clear. God is promising this to the nation through the covenant he made. Verse 4, if you do this, then the Lord will keep his, the promise he made to me. He told me, if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully with all their heart and soul, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. So he's selling his son in his deathbed. Be courageous. Honor God. Keep the covenant. That's your job, king. Keep the covenant. Verse 5. And there's something else. You know what Joab, son of Zerah, did to me when he murdered my two army commanders, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether? He pretended that it was an act of war, but it was done in a time of peace, staining his belt and sandals with innocent blood. Do with him what you think is best, and don't let him grow old and go to his grave in peace. Let's close in prayer. Try to apply that bad boy. He's not done. Be kind to the sons of Barzali, of Gilead. Non these are non-Hebrew residents. Be kind to them. Make them permanent guests at your table, for they took care of me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember Shammai, son of Gera, the man of Behram and Benjamin? He cursed me with a terrible curse as I was fleeing, or as I was fleeing to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan River, I swore by the Lord that I would not kill him. But that oath does not make him innocent. You are a wise man, and you will know how to arrange a bloody death for him. <laughs> Sorry. Then David died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. David had reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. All right, so just, just to remind you of that, because I want to keep you up with David, the Hebrew, when he refers to Hebron, that was David over just one tribe, just, uh, just his family tribe. Uh, the other 11 tribes were against him. But then in Jerusalem, that's when he reigned for 33 years in peace over the whole nation. Solomon became king and sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Wow. Deathbed conversation with the next king. Just like every man and woman who ever lived, that's how David's life died, ended. It really isn't that remarkable. He's, he's bestowing wisdom on his child, which is something that People often do when they know that their time is nearing an end. It's kind of ironic that this man, as unique as he was, being called by God a man after his own heart. In other words, and, and that's one of those church phrases like peace that passes all understanding, what we throw around but we don't think about. All it means is, of all the men and women in history, this is an example of what it looks like to love me among all everything else. This man is the example. So even though he was that example, his death was kind of normal. Two things David wants Solomon to know as he hands the reins of the family and the kingdom over him. Be courageous and keep the law and the covenant that we made with God. And you do that by studying his scriptures. And second, take care of the family and the nation's business. I know it seems violent, but I have tried to remind you the whole time that this guy's king. He's not, he's not rabbi. He's not evangelist. He's King David. 
And his responsibility was to take care of the nation, and now he is handing the nation off to his son. And there was some unfinished business that it was not his task to take care of. And that's what he's describing. People look at God in the Old Testament, and they look at these characters, and they say it was bloody. Well, I just want to remind you, it's just as bloody today. It's just a little more sophisticated. In America, we hire people to take care of the blood. We send them to Washington, D.C. to make decisions that we don't want to make. You need them on that wall. You want them on that wall. Are all the hunters the only one who saw that movie? That was, that was a really good rendition of that scene. The, the truth is that there's some truth to that movie, A Few Good Men. We, we hire people to do our killing for us. But in here, you, with this scripture, what is so amazing about it is it gives us insight into the kingdom. It gives us insight into the king's family. It gives us insight into the king's sins. We know what's going on on the inside because of the historical document we have. And David, just because he was God's man, was not relinquished from his responsibility of protecting the kingdom as well as fighting her battles. And so that's why he ends his life doing what we do. I want you to take care of your mother. I want you to take care of the family business. Sell all we've got, and I want you to take care. Make sure your mother's bills are paid, and then after that, you can take this money and and, and you can do this or that. Most people do stuff like that if they live to be, a long, uh, to be old and a long life. The fact is, I've watched dozens of people die in my ministry. I wanted to say, I wanted to say almost hundreds. I, I was, I've been telling you the last month that I was going to do the last message on how to die. And as I started studying and praying through the text, I started thinking about my experience at the deathbed of many, many folks, and one of the things that I've come to realize is people really do die as they've lived. If you've lived grumpy, you die grumpy. If you live trusting in God, you actually die trusting in God. Death is a real quick and trunc uh, truncated period of life where all the stuff that you valued and where you put your hope, it's seen in a really short period of time. And I know this probably won't shock you now that we've been together for 14 years, but I've actually sat on people's deathbed, and I've told, there was one man in particular in a previous ministry that I said, I don't want to die like you. You are grumpy. You have just alienated your son. I watched him tell his son off, and, and I said, look, I know you're not going to like this, but I'm your pastor in death as well as life, so here's the deal. Knock it off. It's time to make amends. It's time to build a relationship, not sever them permanently. The truth is people actually act out in their death in most occasions. There's always exceptions, illness, mental illness. But short of that, people really die as they've lived. And so as I was thinking about all this, <clears throat> it struck me that maybe it was a mistake to talk about how to die well from David's example, although there's plenty we could talk about. But instead, talk about how he lived. I mean, if you think about what God said about this man, he is a, an example of what it looks like to passionately seek me then maybe I should, we should make some observations, get some impressions about his life and see if we can't come up with some things that made him a standout servant of the, un, uh, of the awesome God. In that, I think that we have an impression that we are only honoring God and faithful to God when we're praying the prayer of salvation with someone or we're teaching a Sunday school class or leading worship. I wonder if Satan hasn't effectively got it, gotten us to evaluate spiritual health by getting us to weigh our sins on one half, the things that we've done, looked at porn, told people off, gluttony, versus the good things. I've led 30 people to Christ. I, I remember sitting in Bible school classes or in church growing up under David Jeremiah when, he, when we would be challenged, 
you need to make sure you witness to one person every day or you need to get up in the morning and you need to spend an hour in Bible study or 15 minutes in prayer because these are the disciplines of a godly man. And they may, in fact, be the disciplines of a godly man or woman, but that doesn't mean that the man or woman who does those two things or three things are godly. I mean, that's the problem. The problem is, and, and I know this about you, you're busy, you're stressed, life is difficult, and so somehow we want Christ to be preeminent in all of it, and so what we do is we try to find ways to make sure that God is in charge of every facet of our life. And what we end up doing unwittingly is we end up strapping on Christianity like a set of disciplines when in reality it is a relationship. That's why we gather together. Please understand, you do not gather together to get saved. You don't gather together to learn facts. You gather together to reason with the body of Christ so that, so that we together become the temple. When I sit down, when I come into this room, I'm reminded by, um, I don't know, by you. I'm reminded by you of what the love and mercy of God looks like. There are times where I'm discouraged and you're discouraged. And just being around other believers is refreshing. It's just refreshing, even if there's no teaching. Sometimes we try to squeeze a lesson in because we think that's necessary. When in, in, in reality, it's not the message that's a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's you and me gathering and fellowshipping. After studying David together, you have to agree with me that King David, this man that God said was a man after his own heart, was a very flawed guy. I mean, deeply, deeply flawed. In a way that I think it's fair to assume not one of you in here is flawed. This is a guy, I want to remind you, that blatantly disobeyed God when God instructed him how to move the Ark of the Covenant. And because of that, somebody died. I knew you, you, you thought I was going to go right to, uh, right to Bathsheba. But I want, to, I want to tell you that I actually think in some ways, what he did, putting that Ark of the Covenant on a cart when God clearly said to carry it and use the dies, I think that's just as equally sinful. It was clear what he was supposed to do, and because of that, somebody died. I know more people died because he slept with Bathsheba, killed her husband try, uh, after trying to get him to pretend like the child would be his. I mean, all of this stuff is a mess. The, the, one of his sons rapes his sister. You know the story. Because of that, David's life is a mess. But despite all of that, God still calls him a man after his heart. How can, how can God rationalize that? Unless... Unless it's possible that God actually meant what he said when he sent Samuel to pick the next king. That as Samuel picked the oldest brother, the best looking one, and then the next one in line, and God said to Samuel, the problem, Samuel, you have is you are looking at the outward appearance of a man's heart. I look at the inside. If we're going to be honest this morning, and we should be because... I want you to know that dishonesty doesn't work in the end, <laughs> lying to ourselves. The fact is we all kind of get David because as much as we love God, we also love our flesh, and we like to sin. We like that thing that makes us feel better. But I think David might be an example of God looking at a heart. I mean, maybe the heart of David is what God was looking at when he told us, look at David. With that being the case, I'd like to share with you some observations I made, uh, that, that we can make, and I'd like you to observe for yourself about this man's heart and discover why together, why all, of all the men and women who ever lived, this guy's our example. This is the guy. As the author uh, wraps up the historical books of First and Second Samuel, 
Something weird happens at the end. The last four chapters, as I mentioned last week, are not in chronological order. Maybe one of the stories, the one I went over last week, is in chronological order. But all of a sudden, he throws us back into conquest against the Philistines. And in the middle of those battles, he places two psalms of David, two poems, two songs that he writes that aren't found anywhere else in the scriptures because the author seems to think that as he wraps up the life of David, as he wraps up this story, we need to understand this man's heart. Of the two psalms, the first psalm that I'm going to read you actually comes from the time right after Saul is dead and David is no longer hiding in caves. And then the second one, is, is it's entitled The Last Words of David. I don't know if they're absolutely the last words of David, but they're the last psalm that he writes in his life. And as I read through these, I want you to think for yourself, what is on David's mind? So the first one again, the first one I'm going to read you out of 2 Samuel chapter 22 is David's thought his poetic, his writings, immediately after Saul is dead and he doesn't have to run for his life anymore when the nation begins to unify. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my Savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield and the power that saves me. He's my place of safety. He is my refuge my Savior, the one who saves me from violence. Pause. I want you to put yourself in the context. He's had many men die protecting him. He's been running for his life for at least 15, if not 20 years. Much of the kingdom still wants him dead. He has watched his friends and family, Jonathan, be killed in this battle. But in his final thoughts over what's been going on, it's God that he declares his fortress, his sustainer, his savior. Now he's going to tell us why he feels this way about God. Verse 4, I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. The waves of death overwhelmed me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress... I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God for help. And you know what he did? The one worthy of being praised, the God of the universe, heard me from his sanctuary. My cry reached his ears. Then the earth quaked and trembled. The foundations of the heavens shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leaped from his mouth. Glowing coals glazed or blazed forth from him. He opened the heavens and he came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. Mounted on a high, mighty angelic being, he flew, soaring on wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dense rain clouds. A great brightness shone around him, and burning coals blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered his enemies. His lightning flashed, and they were confused. Then at the command of the Lord, at the blast of his breath, the bottom of the sea could be seen and the foundations of the earth were laid bare. He reached down from heaven and rescued me. He rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. They attacked me at a moment when I was in distress. But the Lord supported me. 
He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He restored me because of my innocence. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Some of you are thinking about Bathsheba right now. This is before Bathsheba. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to follow evil. I have followed all of his regulations. I have never abandoned his decrees. I am blameless before God. I have kept myself from sin. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He has seen my innocence. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To those with integrity, you show integrity. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You rescue the, the humble, but your eyes watch for the, uh, the proud and humiliate them. O oh Lord, you are my lamp. You are the light. Uh, you, Lord, lights, uh, the Lord <laughs> lights up my darkness. In your strength, I can crush any army. With my God, I can scale any wall. God's ways is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. For who is God except the Lord? But who, uh, but who but our God is a solid rock? God is my strong fortress, and he makes my way perfect. I want to remind you that this is said right after running for his life for dozens of years. After watching people he loved die. After being in the cave, and, and I want to remind you that the first time that Saul enters the cave, and David's right there. Saul actually goes to the bathroom in the dude's home. And he's watching all this going, what's going on? But he maintains God's providence. He makes me sure-footed as a deer. He enables me to stand on a mountain heights. He trains my hands for battle. He strengthens my arms to draw a, a bronze bow. You have given me your shield of victory. You, your help has made me great. You have made a wide path for my feet to keep me from slipping. I chased my enemies and destroyed them. I did not stop until they were con uh, conquered. I consumed them. I struck them down so that they did not get up. They fell beneath my feet. You have armed me with strength for battle. Why is this significant? Because everybody else would be high-fiving each other saying, we are strong. David's saying, all of our strength comes from God. Verse 41, you placed my foot on their necks. I have destroyed all who hated me. They looked for help, but no one came to their rescue. They even cried to the Lord, but he refused to answer. I ground them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trampled them in the gutter like dirt. You gave me victory over my accusers. See the theme? His strength, his ability, his, his victory, his salvation. Everything is from this God. He believes this. He doesn't write a psalm. And there are, by the way, psalms to the nation of Israel. David writes a couple. He writes them of praise of their position, but it always is attributed to God, like here. You preserve me as a ruler over nations. People I don't even know who now serve me. Foreign nations cringe before me. As soon as they hear of me, they submit. They all lose their courage and come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise to my rock. May God, the rock of my salvation, be exalted. He is the God who pays back those who harm me. He brings down the nations under me and delivers me from my enemies. You hold me safe beyond the reach of my enemies. You save me from the violent opponents. For this, O Lord, I will praise you among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. You give great victories to your king, and you show unfailing love to your anointed, to David and all his descendants forever. Wow. 
when, when you put this in context, look, I've read the Psalms many, many times, and, and some of them bore me, okay? I'm just going to be honest. I'm not a psalmist kind of guy. I'm not a poet kind of guy. The only thing I remember from high school literature is the word sonnet. I think it was 14 lines of iambic pentameter. Is that right? I failed that test in high school. I should get an A. I, I don't re- I, all, all I remember is that I, I'm not a poetic kind of guy, but when you put it in context, it comes alive. It gives us information on this guy's heart and where he stood. What's on, what's on David's mind after Saul is dead? What's on David's mind after the nation begins to unify? It's not, I'm great. It's God's great. Look what he has done. And if we were to go through and break this psalm down, you would see at every corner he attributes every victory, every strong stand, every defeat in God, including the rocks in which he hides himself. He could have said, thank you for creating the rocks around me that protect me, but he doesn't. He says, you are my fortress. Remember we said that whenever David and and, and Samuel, whenever they refer to a fortress, what they're talking about is a cave? He calls God his cave. He attributes everything to God. Now the second psalm. This is the final psalm of his life. It's only seven verses, so stick with me. These are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, speaks. David, here he goes. The man who was raised up so high, David, the man anointed by God, the God of Jacob, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The the rock of Israel said to me, the one who rules righteously, who rules in, in the fear of God, is like the light of the morning at sunrise, like morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. Verse five. Is it not my family that God has chosen? Are you seeing it? Please tell me you see this. He keeps diverting attention where everybody else from, from Nebuchadnezzar to any other king, including some of the, uh, some of the disciples, bring, bring glory on themselves every time. He's like, he's like rubber. Every time there's something that he could take credit for. Even to this day, the people of Israel want another David. We revere David as a great warrior. David is saying, I'm not a great warrior. God is my warrior. He fought on my behalf. Any accomplishment was God. Even when I spoke, God spoke through me. It's not my family. Is it not my family that God has chosen? Yes, he has made an everlasting covenant with me. His agreement is arranged and guaranteed in every detail. He will ensure my safety and success. But the godless are like the thorns to be thrown away, for they tear the hand that touches them. One must use iron tools to chop them down. They will be totally consumed by fire. I hope you hear it. David saw God as his caller, his sustainer. What's on David's mind in the middle of his life and at the end of his life is his providence, God's calling, his raising up, his protection, his provision, God's empowering. David saw God as the center of everything. In David's life, God didn't hold a place of prominence. He held a place of preeminence. God was central to it all, both while it was taking place in the first psalm that I just read you and looking back on it all, David's perspective was unwavering. It was all about God, all of it. In light of this, in the context of this, I want you to look at Psalm 23 again. David This is not, although I love to use it at funerals of of righteous people, because it explains to the lost why this person 
had hope. But in light of what I just read you, this psalm that's in one place, that's, that's declared in the middle of his life, and the psalm at the end of his life, look at Psalm 23 with me. The Lord is my shepherd. Take a breath. That's the subject of this psalm. Everything else tells why the Lord is his shepherd. David is saying, this is is where I get my direction. This is who tells me where to eat. This is the one who disciplines me. If you're wondering who the shepherd, shepherd is, it's the Lord. And because of that, I have everything that I need. Now, David isn't ignorant. He's living in a cave. He could have said, I need a house. It's not what he says. But because he leaned into God at every angle, and because God was his shepherd, he had everything he needed, because he knew that God was taking care of him, because he knew that God had a plan, and that that plan was sure from before his life started to the end of his life to after his life to generations to come. David had made the Lord his shepherd. And because of that, he had all that he need. And here's why. Here's how God has provided his needs. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along the right paths, bringing honor to his own name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley. I will not be afraid. Why am I not afraid? Because you're close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And when my life is over, that's the emphasis of this last line. So your goodness and unfailing love are going to chase me all my life. But when my life is over, I will then go to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is David's declaration. David was shepherded by the ultimate shepherd, the good shepherd. In his life, in his ministry, in his death, David leaned on God. He depended on God, even in the valley of the shadow of death. David was not some religious Jew. He was a man who absolutely depended on the God of the universe. We confuse religiosity, especially with Christianity, just like the Jews did, faithful Judaism, with intimacy with God. They are not the same. From David's point of view, in both good and bad times, God was leading David. He trusted God as his shepherd, and as such, he is protecting and providing for him, even when he's surrounded by his enemies. Because of that, David didn't live in fear, because he knew he was was absolutely convinced that God would continue to provide and protect him until his time was over on this planet. And when his time was over, as from David's point of view, he'd actually go to see the Lord personally. It wasn't a big deal. That's how you die well. You die well by putting all of your eggs in God's basket. That's how you die well. You decide mentally and emotionally, I've had enough evidence from God to prove that he is who he claims to be, and I am no longer going to spend my life trying to prove whether he's trustworthy or not. Just so you know, there are going to be times in your life, just like in David's, when he doesn't feel trustworthy. But if you are convinced that his ways are better than your ways, if you have made him your shepherd, even though you walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, you won't fear evil because you trust him. The problem with Mark Wilkie and much of the church today is we are continually asking God to prove himself that he can be trusted. 
when we get cancer, when our kids get sick, when we get in a car accident, when we don't get the job we deserve, when our pastor, uh, that wouldn't happen here, but when whatever, fill in the blank. We continually are asking God, God, prove yourself by healing me. And what we're doing is we're trying to manipulate God by telling him that he'll get more praise if, in fact, he does things the way we want. God has turned into some religious Santa Claus. And you know who did that? King Saul. That's what King Saul did. I want to remind you that in both instances where, where uh, David could have killed Saul, but he refused to do so, this is the reason he said he didn't do it. How can I kill God's anointed? And the guys around him are going, what is your problem? God has delivered him into your hands. But David believed so much that God could take care of Saul at the right time, he wouldn't stand up against him. He trusted God even if it would cost him his life. I want to remind you that in the middle of the story, he actually believes that Saul's going to kill him. But he says, so be it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I trust him. The difference between David and Saul was not their calling. And I want to add to that, or their anointing. They were both anointed by God to be the king. The difference between David and Saul was that when Saul, uh, that Saul only called on God when he wanted God to bless his own ideas and plans. God, we're about to go to battle in the Philistines. Please make us victorious. Bring in the priests. That's what Saul did. David, when he did it right, he actually went to God first and asked God if he wanted him to fight. We've got our enemies surrounded, God. Should we, should we attack? I want you to attack. I don't want you to attack. But he sought God, whether it made rational sense or not. He didn't raise his hand against God's anointed King Saul. He wouldn't take him on because he believed that even if he died because he didn't take him on, that God was better. Another thing that's different is when Saul was confronted by, uh, with his sin, he asked the prophet not to tell anybody. David ran and said, I have sinned against God and God alone. He repented because Saul was all about Saul and the nation. David was all about God and God and God and his plans. I encourage you to take that into the ballot box on Tuesday. The truth is, our country can go the way you don't want it to go. Do you still believe in God? The truth is you may die before your time. Your kids may die before their time. Your kid might even get E. coli at 2 and end up with uh, diabetes because of it, even if you don't want it. And you can pray for 30 years that God heals them and God may not heal them. Do you still believe? Do you still trust? It's kind of shallow, to be honest, to only say praise God when things go well. You ever thought about that? It's kind of shallow. I mean, can we praise him when things aren't going well? When we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, do we still praise him? You see, that's the difference between Saul and David. Saul praised God when it was going his way. David praised God even in the valley of the shadow of death. Having said that, there are five things that stand out to me about David that I want to show you that I think, in my opinion, make him a man after God's heart. The first one is he was humble and accountable, even repentant when, conf when confronted with his sin. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what's evil in your sight. 
you will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Most of the time when we get caught in sin, we hope God doesn't make us pay for that sin. Help my wife not to find out. Help my husband not to find out. Don't let my boss know what I said. David said, anything that happens to me from this point on is just. Humble accountability. Second thing, he was a man of faith that trusted in God no matter what the odds were and what stood before him from the very beginning. Remember this part of his life story in 1 Samuel 17? David replied to Goliath, You come at me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. The God of, heavens, uh, the, God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, today the Lord will conquer you, and I'll kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that I'm a great warrior. It's not what it says. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with a sword or a spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he'll give you to us. Can I remind you that most messages about David with Goliath are about finding the five stones in your life that will defeat the giants in your life? Do you realize that that's exactly opposite of what David felt? David doesn't say, make my rock work. He actually gives credit to God for defeating this ugly nine-foot, nine-inch guy. And then he says, God will give you into our hands, and I'm going to cut your head off. He's actually attributing his hands to God's authority. I'm just a tool of the mighty one. David, from the earliest days, 13, 14, 15 years old, saw God not as his religious experience, but as the one who sustained him. Do you remember before this happens, he goes to Saul to explain that he can take on the big, the big ugly, bad mouth guy? And before he does, he says, look, I was out in the, in, in the wilderness tending flock, and God gave me the power to overcome the bears and the lions. He always attributed all of his victories to God. David saw God not as, not as you know, his, his thing he reached on, but the one who was preeminent in his life. Not only was he humble and, and uh, repentant in sin, but he was a man of faith in God no matter what the odds were against him. Thirdly, despite having a priest and a prophet and even, a, even talking with God personally in his life, David loved God's written instructions to he and his nation. Boy, this one's important now. This may be the most boring one to you, but i got to tell you something. In today's time, in what's going to happen in the next 30 years in evangelical Christendom, where we're starting to put the scriptures away, we're starting to secondary those, you know, they're old. What you just need is you have the Holy Spirit in you to tell you what's true. So you don't need this book. I'm here to tell you, you need this book. God has revealed himself through the word. Listen to what David says in Psalm 119.47. How I delight in your commands. How I love them. I honor and love your commands. I meditate on your decrees. Number four, he was thankful. Psalm 26, 6 and 7. I come to your altar, O Lord, singing a song of thanksgiving and telling of all your wonders. He was obedient. Even into things that didn't make sense to him. Psalm 119, 34. Give me understanding and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all of my heart. These are five qualities that as I was thinking the last couple weeks about this message stood out to me about David. I think they summarize his life. But they're not these five things he woke up and said, I'm going to be this man. It's because he believed so deeply in God from the inside out that these things manifested themselves. 
This, this message this morning isn't to get you to do five things for God that David did. It's to get you to do one thing, fall in love and entrust with him. He may not take care of your life, but he will take care of your soul. You can make the case that God didn't, the Father didn't take care of Jesus' life so that we could be saved. Like everything else in our culture, we evaluate things today based upon our feelings and our momentary experience and not the God of the moment. That's what made David so unique. In the valley of the shadow of death or eating, eating food in front of his enemies, David saw God as the provider of all of it. Though deeply flawed, David sought after God. He believed God, his plans, and his ways were best. He believed in the goodness and the justice and the fairness of God, even as he's hunkered down on the dirt floor of a cave somewhere in the wilderness where his arch enemy had just gone to the bathroom. D.L. Moody once said, the world is yet to see what God can do through a man who's fully consecrated to him. With all respect to D.L. Moody, he was wrong. David was that man. Yeah, but he sinned. And his sin was forgiven. And even while sinning, even while being confronted by his sin, even as stupid as he was, even as wicked as he was, he never made excuses. He owned what was his, and he repented. So that's my opinion. But ironically, most of us aren't aware that God actually tells us why he called David a man after his own heart. Did you know that? Acts 13, 22. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man who, about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Well, I, sounds like a slave. Yes, it does. You mean, to be a man after God's heart, I have to do everything he tells me to do? Of course you do. Everything? Apparently so. Doesn't mean you won't sin. Doesn't mean you won't struggle. Doesn't mean you won't go through the valley of the shadow of death. But there's a whole branch of evangelicalism today that's telling you you can have the good life, God, and eternity too. And I'm here to tell you that's not, that's not how the story is told. You see, the reason Dave, David did everything God wanted him to do was because Psalm 42, 1 and 2. David longed for God. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Next verse. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go and stand before him? This is the heart of David, who could hardly wait for his life to be over so he could stand before the one he had trusted in. Because life, life is difficult because we now see through a glass dimly. And we lose sometimes, maybe a lot. And we get discouraged, and we get overwhelmed, and we want to pass on a better generation, a better life for our children. But I'm looking at our life now, and I'm wondering if this generation really understands with all that we've given them, what is good? Men and women, what happens when we become like Saul, 
who when we're in dire straits, we ask God to give us a victory, but we don't thirst for him. We don't long for him. We don't trust him in the chaos. And again, I'm talking about the universal church, especially in our culture, but I got to tell you something. It doesn't seem like the church is trusting God all that much. Seems like some of us trust Trump, some of us trust Me Too, some of us trust the Democrats. And I got to tell you something, none of them deserve our trust. You don't even know these people. My flesh wants to trust one party. My flesh does. I'm drawn to that. I will probably be up late Tuesday night. And I will probably be grumpy Wednesday morning, which is a problem because that's the day I write my message. It will probably be a grumpy message next Sunday. But I am here to tell you that whether or not the Democrats or Republicans win, or whether or not, you know, I don't know, what happens in my body. No matter what happens, God is still good. He is still on his throne. And he can still be trusted. And even if you don't trust him, he will still win. He may not win today. He may not win tomorrow. But he is in the process of winning. He, is, he can't lose. Do you understand that? God cannot lose. And David somehow figured that out. David figured it out. He put his trust in God. He put his trust in God. And after being convinced that God was trustworthy, then he said, when can I go be with him? David's life in our study, and a lot of you have commented on it, was very painful, was very difficult. We, we decided, I, I guess we were talking, maybe 10 years of David's reign over the nation of Israel was Camelot. And in that time, you got Bathsheba, you got the Ark of the Covenant going in. It's, it's, it just wasn't that great of a life, but he was a man who believed. And God said, I chose David over Saul because he would do anything I told him to do. And that's what it means that he's a man after my heart. Would you put that last verse up there for me, Kevin, please? Take it in. Read it. Think about it. Are you that woman? The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Does that define you? It did David. Are you fully committed to him? Will I, as a pastor, do anything he asks me to do? That's none of your business. Will you? If you won't, you're Saul. And I think we're a lot of Saul. I believe what God is asking from Mark right now is to trust him in the valley of the shadow of death. Because I do trust him when things are great. Christmas morning, I am so close with God. <laughs> you laugh because you know what I'm talking about. But do I trust him with low budgets and criticisms? Do I trust him? My son's about to get married. He's, he's nine. What does he know about having a family? <laughs> In case he's watching a lot, Zach, I'm very proud of you. My little girl, the accounting office has made her a student accountant in the school or some weird position. It's 
amazing. She's in the middle of decision-making for the future. <laughs> I'm going, have you seen her bedroom? <laughs> you, you want her to be involved in deciding on multi-million. Don't. She's good. <laughs> and then I look in the mirror. And I go, are you kidding me? You're asking me to feed between 800 and 1,000 people who are your children, your most precious possession, and you want me to study your word and tell them something about you when I haven't even figured it out? And the Lord whispers, yes. That two-year-old that's out of control in your living room is your mission field. Those kids in your class that are rebellious and throwing things at you, that's your mission field. The principal at your school that's unreasonable, mission field. Your spouse, mission field. It's our mission field. And even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not have to fear evil, even if it's, even if it's on the verge of killing us, because <laughs> he will pursue us all the days of our life. And when he's done and our task is over, then we will die, but we're not dead. For we are more alive than we will ever have ever been before as we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is what it means to be a man or woman after the heart of God. Lord Jesus, make us the men and women whose heart long and thirst for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Bible study will start in 10 minutes. If you would like to pray, I'll be up here uh, or talk.